Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. And for all of the important things that we've talked about here on the Guardian Podcast, we have not discussed one really important thing, and that is to discuss Ren. Ren, we hardly know you, so this week on the podcast, we will get to know Ren Melberg just a little bit better. And Ren, after all these weeks, I just thought it was high time that we all get better acquainted with you. First of all, your name, your name is obviously Ren, but that's not a name that we hear every day. Are you named after someone or is Ren short for something or, or is it a nickname? Um, not named after anyone. It's just Ren. Um, and it's derived from Mary Catherine. Okay. And it's the spe- Irish spelling of Catherine, which is K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Okay. So you chop off the calf and you get Ren. Okay. Um, but my name is just Ren. Okay. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of fun, I think, to have uh, a unique handle. There's not that many heralds around either, so... <laughs> You know, when somebody says it's Harold there, I mean, I know it's always, I know it's always me. So, yes, and it, and I like, and I have to say, I've enjoyed over the years being the only Rin and almost always the only Melberg mm-hmm. anywhere I've gone to work. Uh, so it makes it very easy to find me and and uh, to to reach out to me because it's not like you're gonna Google me and. There's going to be, you know, 18 million. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if your name was, you know, um, Debbie Smith, it would be a It'd be different very story. Different story. Yeah. <laughs> I like being that unique, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and and me too. So, um, well, where did you study? Uh, I went to uh, college, uh, formerly at Hamlin University okay. in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I had a double minor, uh, sorry, double major, triple minor, mm-hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was all liberal arts, okay. so um, you know, no, no formal business training, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but my primary major was philosophy, Uh-oh. and I was inspired actually by Lee Iacocca. If People remember him. Oh, sure. Um, from the 80s. I was in college, and one of my professors suggested that I read his autobiography, and here's this incredible, um, very successful businessman, mm-hmm. very respected. Um, and he had a philosophy degree and never and only had a, a bachelor's. Um, (laughs) and he talked about how his degree taught him discernment, how to think, how to process information, what is relevant, what is not relevant, and to make really good decisions. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me. And that definitely has, uh, held true from my own career, I would say. Yeah, that's, um, that's so cool. And I love the word discernment, um. It's uh, it's not one you hear every day. And you had a double major and a triple minor. Um, that's a lot. I went into college, especially since um, I was 
paying for it myself, um, largely, either through scholarships or loans, luckily, primarily mm-hmm. scholarships. I went into college thinking, I'm going to get everything I can out of this experience. And so I took every class that interested me, that intrigued me. And I maximized my course load. Um, I usually, most years, and I think um, at least three out of four years, I took the absolute maximum number of courses that you could take. Um, Because I wanted to get everything I could out of this um, very, very expensive education. And I did. Well, I say good for you because I maximized my beer consumption during college. So... I did have a lot of fun, and I still, to this day, some of my most treasured friends are from my college days. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes I think um, learning how to balance the seriousness of academia but still having fun is a fantastic bonding experience that can last a lifetime. Well, that, that's so well said, and I, I too, still have uh, friends from, from school. Now, so you graduate and you go to work. What was your first job after you graduated? So originally when I went to Hamlin, I intended to be an attorney. Okay. I was going to go into law school, and um, I was in the accelerated program to do that. But I had this brilliant college professor who gave me an opportunity to um, participate in a unique court case, court case mm-hmm. and he later told me that he suspected that I loved the law but would have hated being an attorney. Okay. And I discovered working on that case that he was absolutely right. <laughs> yep. I love the law. I still love the law. It's one of the reasons I love governance, and we talk about it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have hated being an attorney. I would have been bored out of my mind. And I love and treasure him because he saved me a lot of my money and time and anguish. Well, that's good. Because um, I learned that in my freshman year in in, in college. Um, and there's so many people that I've talked to since then, they don't figure that out until they've been an attorney for a couple of years. Um, so when I came out of college, I wasn't sure what to do. And a family friend said that I would make a really good business analyst. Ah. And he had a consulting firm. And so I went to go work for him, and I'm learning what it means to be a business analyst, right? Right. I had no idea what that meant. And <laughs> I happened to be at a company that you might have heard of called American Express. I, I think I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really liked the company, and they really liked me. And so I eventually became, uh, actually not very long after that, became an employee of American Express. Yeah, um, and we've talked before, and you've mentioned before that that you had worked um, for American Express, and that that was really a good place to work. But did you have other, let's call them regular jobs, before you started consulting? I've kind of, um, since 2002 have gone back and forth between being a consultant and, and being an employee. Okay. Um, it, it, you know, even very recently, you know, three years ago I was an employee. Okay. <laughs> now I'm consulting again. Um, 
But even when I was an employee, even back then at American Express, I can look back now and go, okay, even then I was playing this kind of consultative role where I was looking around and going, okay, um, how can we do this a little bit better? Uh What are the things that are impeding our success in doing what we're trying to achieve? And... More importantly, I think what distinguishes me from a lot of people is I really got into the science of business very young in my career. And it was in those very early days at American Express because my first employee job there, I worked in mergers and acquisitions. Okay. And I worked with some really brilliant people who saw a lot of potential in me and were constantly giving me homework. Uh <laughs> You know, read this of Peter Drucker, read this, read that. And and now I can look back and go, the biggest thing that distinguished, distinguished me in mergers and acquisitions is that I'm a natural systems thinker. Okay. I can go into any situation and quickly tell you how that system works or doesn't work. And... That really became honed working in mergers and acquisitions because I was not only working on the due diligence team, but I was also working on the integration team. Uh And so I was able to quickly assess what would work and what wouldn't work to bring that company into American Express. Or we used to say bring them into the blue box um, in reference to the logo. Um, and, And... those were skills that um, scientific curiosity <laughs> and yeah. knowledge, as well as that systems thinking that I had in my very first employee role in American Express, I think you get, you can see that in the rest of my career and definitely comes out in these podcasts yeah. and a lot of what we talk about. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the analytical skill... Um, whole going back to your study of philosophy um really that's a thread that people who've listened um i think they'll see that how that pulls through everything so how how were you first introduced to agile american express Ah, of course (laughs) and actually what's hilarious is at the time and it was an accident um uh, you know, I was working with an R&D group, and um, they were doing this new thing, but it didn't have a name because mm-hmm. it wasn't called Agile yet. That didn't happen for um, four or five years after that. Um, and it was starting to be called Scrum. We're getting a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get really hung up too much on the words and the labels. We were really focused in on the behavior. And to be honest with you, looking back, I would say we probably used more of the extreme programming practices mm-hmm. and the code development and the code testing and that really um, intimate collaboration. Mm-hmm between business and technology than, you know, some of the more of the scrum behavior that we've talked a lot about. We didn't do daily stand-ups, for example. Okay. But everybody worked in the same room. Okay. 
We did a lot of experiments. We checked in with each other. We had fast, frequent feedback. Like, they would just call me up and say, Rin, we need you to come down. We want to show you something. Okay. Or, Rin, can you jump on this WebEx? We want to show this to you. Um, And then when we got more mature, it was, okay, Rin, we want to show you you on this WebEx because we need you to tell us who we need to show this to because we need to get customer feedback Uh on this. Um, And that's really how I got introduced. It was an accident. And we came up with some brilliant business products. And it was so exciting. And it really tapped into one that that inner scientist of me um, to the person of the, the part of me that's very futuristic. That's always kind of thinking about the next new thing uh-huh. and what's the, you know, what's the next thing we can do? What's the new hurdle? What's the, how can we blow people's minds? <laughs> and the part of me that passionately hates waste. Yes. Because this, that was a big thing that this new process that we now call Agile, Mm -hmm. introduced to me was there was very little waste in the system. Right. And I could look at the rest of my portfolio and I could see significant systemic waste. Right? Yes. And I'm looking at this R&D group and going, there's very little because there's such a short window between what they developed and what they then showed to someone to get their feedback. Yeah. And I kind of fell in love with that before it had a name. <laughs> yeah, because um, all of the uh, steps that you describe um, are just hand in glove with with Agile and Scrum. But what convinced you to leave the security of you know a regular paycheck, regular paycheck, and and to start consulting on your own? Uh, American Express. <laughs> Oh, okay. Them again. Them again. Uh, They are really a a very important theme in my early development of my career. But um, I left American Express as part of the September 11th cuts. I was the last wave. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, I hadn't at that point had the time or the space to process everything that I'd personally been through um, as a witness, as someone who'd been there on September 11th. Um, Because I'd been so focused on the company and what we needed to do to save this incredibly important company. Uh And... So my plan when I left in in January of 2002 is I was going to take a year off and not work. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) instead I got a request to come back and work with a couple of other consultants on a very important project for American Express. And it was to assess their investment decisioning processes for the entire company, which was 16 lines of business at the time, and make sure that they were doing it in a way that was most effective and was balanced. Uh Um, Because at that point, American Express, which one of the hardest hit companies in the United States by the events of September 11th, we lost our corporate headquarters. Uh 
because uh, it was the building attached to the World Trade Center, so it was not occupiable right. for a very long time, or for a long time. Um, the travel industry tanked. Yeah. The Wall Street crashed. <laughs> yeah. And no one was charging. And so their three biggest lines of business, nothing was happening. There was very uh, sharp declines in revenue. And so we had a limited amount of funds that we needed to make sure we got the maximum value for the company. Uh And that's what we did. We created um, a very balanced way of looking at the investments and measuring the investments and helping the executives make really good investment decisions across the entire portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, Very scientific, very geeky, really made sure that we took as much waste out of the system as possible, right? So it played into all the things I really love. And it actually, for the large part, is the same system that they're using now. So it's obviously been very effective for them. Yeah, I guess um, so. The, the primary creator of it um, has gone back and he's made additional uh, changes and tweaks and um, the process continued to be improved as far as automation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was incredibly successful. Yeah. So a- that was my first consulting project yeah. and my first foray into consulting. Yeah, it sounds like um, you know, you uh you were able to to kind of hit a home run at the first time at bat, but the first months as a consultant as a as a independent contractor, was it scary? Was it frustrating, overwhelming, a little bit of all some of not the other? What was it like? <laughs> Um, it was hard. I wasn't accustomed to thinking like a consultant. Uh-huh. Um, it was really a huge learning curve for me. Um, a great experience. And there were times when, and I was working with very experienced consultants. Uh-huh. All of them had been consultants for 10 years or more. Okay. And this was my very first <laughs> foray. Uh-huh. And I remember just a couple of times just saying some really stupid things because I didn't know better. Okay. And now I can laugh. <laughs> uh, at the time, I just felt like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. But it really was amazing experience. And the people that I worked with just were so patient and understanding because they knew mm-hmm. this was the first time I had done this. Um. And, and so they really mentored me and gave me really kind but pointed feedback. Um, that really has helped me out a lot in my career. But I was in a rarefied position. I mean, I was leaving a company that had worked very hard to do their best to buy me, American Express. Uh-huh. Um, like I said, I was in a position where I could take a year off before looking for work. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot, not everybody has that privilege. Um, I did, and I think that's what made it a less daunting experience. I didn't feel as much pressure. 
and I was in a position where I could just kind of chill mm-hmm. and learn. Yeah, and that uh, those lessons you learned, um, it sounds like they they have really stood you in good stead. Tell us though more about what what motivates you and and the things that you're you're passionate about. You mentioned a couple of them. Well, I I think the ones that stand out the most in my career is um, my love of business science. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot out there, and I really feel that it's underappreciated and underutilized, and that's what feeds into my second passion is my um, unbridled hatred of waste. Right, yes. And so many people think of waste just in terms of um, wasted money or wasted time. I think of it in terms of wasted opportunity. Uh So I I do this all the time on the podcast and to people in general is I always look and see what the general accountability office said we wasted in this country Uh the previous year in projects. Right. Right. This la- the last year was like $65 billion. That's, that, what that tells me is that $65 billion that we didn't spend on innovation. Uh-huh. $65 billion we didn't spend on infrastructure. Uh-huh. $65 billion that is not invested in our future. Right. And that drives me crazy. Yeah, <laughs> because that's how I look at it. Is sixty-five billion dollars of waste? You know how many jobs that is? Yeah, that's, that's a, a lot, lot of, of jobs. That's a lot of new bridges and a lot of uh, new airports and and all kinds and of things. New technology and you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. right? And that's how I look at waste. Not. I think in the in a traditional way of people saying, "Oh, that was a waste of time" or whatever. I look at it as always as a waste of opportunity, uh-huh. and I think that's why investment decisioning is so important to me. Um, why we talk so much about making good investment decisions. Uh-huh. You know, we've had a couple of podcasts about that. Why governance is important because. Right. Governance not only keeps people from doing bad things, but it also creates opportunities for innovation. That's right. Um, it, and you don't get right. them back. You don't get them back. Right. Like, once they're and, gone. And, you know, and I, I look at not just systems that way, but people. I look at people and go, okay, if this person received better feedback, if that person received better training, mm-hmm. they they could do a great, better job. It's why I cringe whenever someone says somebody's a bad employee because it's rarely been the case. What I've seen is people in a bad fit yeah. for their job. And if they were in a different role, they would be better fit and they would perform better in that role. That's a form of waste too when you have the wrong person in the wrong role. That's a good that's a good point. And points like that, you know, a lot of times a, a third party can come in, can come into an organization and tell them things that nobody on the payroll can say or or that they even dare to say. Has has that been your experience as a consultant? It has been, but you have to be careful. 
So it's a it's a phrase that started with consultants, and now you you hear it on TV and movies every once in a while. Is no one wants to hear their baby is ugly? That's true. Um, which luckily for me has been fairly easy <clears throat> because I haven't had a client where the baby was just ugly. Right. Right. Every client that I've worked with, and I think part of this is my own decision making, but every client I've worked with, there's some really big piece of potential. Mm-hmm. There's something they're doing really, really right. And so it's a lot easier to come in and say, okay, guys, here are the six things you're doing really well. Mm-hmm. Here's the three things I think we need to work on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, but I love that expression, nobody wants to be told that their baby is ugly because um, people do tend to get personally offended when you are really trying to, to help them out. So it's... Right, and I have been in a situation where I had a client who had invested an incredible amount of money on a project on a baby that was really ugly and no one wanted and no one was going to buy. And, you know, I found ways to deliver the message in a way that's respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they listen. I can think of a couple of really good cases. They listen and they're like, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I can think of one case in particular where they didn't listen mm-hmm. and that CEO wound up losing his job. And it wasn't because of anything I did, but it was because other people knew the baby was ugly too. And I found that in every instance when I've had to say, like I said, you're doing these six things great. Here's two, (laughs) not so good. Here's one, dude, you need to stop. Yeah. Right? I'm not the only one who's thinking that. Yeah. That has never been the case. Every single time I've come into a company in that situation, I there was usually the second or the third thing I heard when I got in the door. Uh-huh. Because everybody else knew too. And that's what happened with the CEO. He didn't know it, and I didn't know it right away, but I was the last chance for him to listen, that he was given to listen, and he didn't. Huh. And that's when they went, okay, we're cutting the cord. Yeah. We're cutting the cord. Because your own people have been telling you, here's an expert telling you, and you're still not listening. Yeah. Yeah. That's um It's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. But it was the right decision for that company and for its employees. Mm. It's really bad for the employees to have executives making wasteful decisions. Because that puts the employees' jobs at risk. That's exactly right. And and it's really bad for the investors. <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. Really bad. <laughs> Very bad. You know, sometimes I think that being a consultant, it's kind of like being um, a substitute teacher. You're going to go where and when you get called, and you get very little notice and very little time to prepare. Is my substitute teacher, is that is that an apt analogy for you? Um, 
That's happened a couple of times. I've gotten little moments and a little time to prepare, but it's pretty rare, I'll be honest with you. Okay. Um, before I sign an, if, you know, an engagement with a client, we've usually been talking mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've really gotten to know the company. I know them. You know, I've already... I've talked about this before, you know, gone to their website, I've read their annual reports, I've, you know, I've I've done my due diligence about them. Um, I've usually had time to meet or get, you know, get to know um, the key individuals. Um, So most of the work that I do, uh, there is time to prepare mm-hmm. before I go in. I mean, I'm thinking about an engagement right now um, that I'm working on. I'm hoping to uh, sign a contract with soon. And the very first thing they want me to do is an assessment. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, not as common as I would like, but that's fairly common. You know, mm-hmm. let's come in, you get to know us, we get to know you. Um, let's take a look at the landscape and we'll put a plan together yeah. together we'll do it right, right. um so it's not quite as a hired gun <laughs> uh-huh. or substitute teacher and i'm certainly not there in the in, in the sense of a substitute teacher where i'm just there to keep the peace uh-huh. yeah people don't hire me companies don't hire me unless they want to change yeah, you you didn't get hired to babysit, so... Um... Right. I'm not hired to maintain the status quo. Right. There are consultants who are, and they have a significant value, but that's just not me. Mm-hmm. That, that's not what you'd hire me to do. You, you hire me because you're like, I want to do things better. Yeah, it's... Um... Well, I'm sad that my analogy went nowhere, but, you know, <laughs> if, if, don't if I don't ask the it. question, you know, I'll never know the, I'll never know the real, the real knowledge. Right. So. Right. Um, but I think that is a perception sometimes, especially now when contract workers and consultants are getting blurred. Mm-hmm. And right. like, I'm not staff og. I'm not staff augmentation, uh-huh. um, not in the traditional sense. Have I been hired by companies to come in and be their interim chief something? Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. Um, but that's not staff augmentation, right? Not just anybody can do that. You can't just pick anybody off the street and say, here, be our COO. Uh-huh. Um, and I have all the authority of that and responsibility of that position. Right. Um, and I'm usually there to do that for them because in one case, their COO was um, out on medical leave. Uh-huh. Um, in another case, they weren't sure that that CIO position was going to be permanent or not. And they needed to get through a pretty significant restructuring to understand what that executive ranks needed to look like. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Um you're not going to hire hands and feet for those kind of roles. You're going to hire someone who's coming with a very particular set of strategic business and financial acumen um, to help you through that difficult time and get you to a better place. 
in the end and set you up for the road you want to go down next. Yeah, and along those lines, you know, you've you've told us before that organizations are going to be experiencing some kind of pain before they call you or before they decide to adopt Agile. So what are some of those specific sources of pain? I think the two biggest ones that companies come to me with are they feel like they're not as productive or successful with their projects as they would like to be. Mm -hmm. That big waste dumper that I mentioned before, you know, $65 billion. (laughs) Um, They feel they've got a chunk of that Mm -hmm. in project waste. They own. The second most common is time to market. They just feel like their competitors are kicking their ass and getting (laughs) to market before them. Yeah. And what I always tell the executives that I work with is if your gut tells you your competitors are kicking your ass, they're kicking your ass. Yeah, that's right. Don't wait for the numbers. Don't wait for the verification. If you are sitting and laying in bed at night and you're like, oh my God, I think so-and-so is kicking our ass, they're mm-hmm. kicking your ass. Just yep. own it. Um, it it takes too long to get market verification in certain industries. Financial services is one. Um, anything in IT technology is another one. It takes way too long to get market verification. So if you're an experienced executive and your gut is keeping you up at night, go with that. <laughs> Trust your gut. Yeah. Um, don't wait because it's only going to get worse. Right, And those are the two big reasons why companies come to me in general um, for, for Agile is they know they can do better. Right. They also know that if they could do better with the people they have in-house, they would be doing better. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the insights that um, I really haven't thought about is that, you know, the team we have is the team we have. Um, they're not going to overnight get become brilliant. Um, right, and you can't send them out to training or a certification and they come back a week later and they're an expert. Yeah. Right. It doesn't work that way. No. Um, as we've discussed, we haven't done the dates. I mean, I gave you guys some hints. You know, my mm-hmm. first consulting was in 2002. Um, it takes a long time Uh to get really good at this. It takes a significant amount of personal investment. You have to really care. You have to really like what you're doing. You have to really want your clients to be successful, however your client has defined success. Because I don't do that for my clients. I don't define success. I help them define it get it out of their heads, put it on paper, put it on a wall, right? But I don't define it. And I help them get there and help them create the roadmap. Um, But you have to really care to be good at this. That's so well said. Um, And there's no substitute for passion or enthusiasm or desire. And, you know, assuming somebody had those qualities um, and was interested in becoming an Agile consultant, um, what other advice would you give them? 
I think, uh, you know, specifically with Agile, think about where you want to start. It's a big umbrella, uh-huh. Agile. Um, where do you want to start? Pick one of the main categories. Uh-huh. You know, we talk a lot about, because there's some significant differences between Scrum and XP and Safe and Crystal, uh-huh. right? Just picking four off of them. Lean. There's even more differences in lean. Pick one. Yeah. One that speaks to you personally. And really study it. Really start to invest it. And then find ways to incorporate that in what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, be, you know, become and find out, figure out why you care. Why are you passionate about it? What is it that about this agile area of study to get you out of bed in the morning. Because uh-huh. um, like I said, to be a really good consultant, especially to be an agile consultant, because you're always coming in and you're doing change and transformation. You're getting people to work differently and to think differently about their work. That requires an emotional commitment to your clients and to their success. I call it agile therapy. <laughs> There's a degree of agile therapy to what we do. And if you can't come to your clients with that authenticity, they'll know. Right. They'll know. They may not be able to say, you know, just, I I don't feel this person is authentic with me, right? What they'll say is things like, well, I'm not really sure I trust them. That's the strongest thing they'll say. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's the same. I'm not sure they're a good fit for our culture. Or I don't think they really understand us. Things like that. Right. But they'll find a way of communicating that I don't think this person really cares. Right. Yeah, those kinds of intangible things about fitting in and um, so forth. But it it's a way of answering that gut feeling that... Right. Um, they don't care. And yeah. as a consultant, one of the things that is hard when you're doing transformation and change, and everybody who's done change management knows this, uh-huh. people will sometimes see those same things when they're being change resistant. Yes. So you can't look at those things individually. You have to look at other things that are going on. So if someone says, I don't think this person really understands this, but they're doing all the right scrum behaviors, for example, then there's a disconnect between them and their consultant. Okay. If they're not doing all the the right scrum behaviors, then that's probably change resistance. And as a consultant, if you aren't paying attention and you aren't invested in your client's success, it's not very likely that you're going to notice the difference between those two things. That's a good point. Right? Yeah, that's right. And then you can't share that insight with your client and help them either understand how you really do care and this is how you show that you care or help them see their own change resistance and get out of the way of their own success. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And you know, those phrases that you mentioned, um, like you say, if you've been involved in change, um, you've heard those before. And, but I like that you pointed out, um, you know, if they're doing the work correctly, it's one thing. And if they're not doing the work correctly, it's something else again. Right. 
and with the time we we've got left, man, you know, you're obviously, you know, really successful at this. What plans or ambitions do you have for yourself in the immediate future or even five years out? Oh, good question. Probably the hardest one you've asked today. Um, (laughs) And I saved it for the end. (laughs) (laughs) Got me at the end. Sneak attack. Um, Right now, I mean, what I've really been trying to do more is more, uh, well, like this podcast, just talk about the work more. Mm-hmm. Um, why agile is important to me, why governance is important to me, how I think people can benefit from both, mm-hmm. specifically if they do them together, um, how they can really benefit from that. And what I want to do is, you know, get these going, which we've already seen. I spur conversations and mm-hmm and dialogue and interactions. Um, but I also want to write more and, you know, I, I do more of the science and share that with a larger audience. I think what we're, the uh, amount of work that we have done and that I've done in Agile and Governance, we have the proof that people need to see of how important this is and how valuable this is. And I'd really like to get that out more, do more speaking engagements. Um, mm-hmm. As you're always encouraging to do, write more. Yes. Um, long-term, what I really want to do is work more with uh, corporate boards, mm-hmm. ultimately be more on corporate boards. Um, mm-hmm. I've done more corporate advisory boards. Um but I'd like to do more work with boards. There's a lot of potential there mm-hmm. to improve governance practices. There's also agile practices that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should do an all whole podcast just on that. Yeah. Um, but agile practices for boards that they could really benefit from that would improve transparency and improve the governance ability of boards. And I'd really like to do more of that kind of work as well because there's an incredible amount of potential there. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that that's absolutely the truth. And, and even just the, you know, the things that we've talked about on the podcast over the months point out that there's still lots and lots of work to be done in that space. And I guess, you know, before we go, I'm always interested in, in what people do and how did they get to be in the positions they're in. And I guess today's program really wasn't wasn't any different. And I know that, um, you know, we're all grateful, Ren, that you, you shared um, a little bit more of yourself with us today. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the time. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And... For those of you who are listening, um, if you're on iTunes or SoundCloud or someplace that we don't know, um, you can be directly in touch with Ren. You can go to her website, and it's www.renmelberg.com. And you can also follow Ren on Twitter. Be sure to come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. <laughs>